Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and this week I'm very excited to be talking all about how to pay for college. Joining me in the Georgetown office in Washington, D.C. is U.S. News Managing Editor of Education, Anita Narayan. Anita, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for pronouncing my last name correctly. <laughs> Spelt it uh, just in a way so I'd make sure I got it right the first try. Uh, now, obviously, paying for college is a very complicated topic that's going to change based on every family's unique financial situation. So on this episode, uh, I want to try to tackle it from a few very universal perspectives. Seeking out all the financial aid that you can from different sources, learning how to save early on to pay for college later, and understanding what resources are out there to help you along the way. So let's start out fairly simply. What are the different types of financial aid that, that one can pursue before applying for, for college? So financial aid is what helps families pay for college by covering higher ed expenses. So that can include things like tuition and fees, room and board, and textbooks. Um, one easy way to think about financial aid is think about it in two buckets. Money that you don't have to pay back, so that's things like scholarships, grants, work study, um, and then the other bucket being money you do have to pay back, like student loans. Officially, though, there are two types of financial aid. So there's need-based, um, which is based on a family's financial need, and there's merit-based, which is based on a student's specific talent or an academic or athletic ability. Um, so what, what I would say is there's three things to keep in mind when it comes to, to financial aid. Uh, one, there, there are different types of aid, and therefore they're, they're provided through different sources, meaning that you can get financial aid through colleges, you could get it through foundations, you can get it through government agencies. Uh, two, I would say that the amount of aid a student can receive really depends on federal, state, and institutional guidelines. So there's no kind of magic answer to how much aid am I going to get. And then three, the first step to get financial aid is make sure you fill out the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid. So I think a lot of people, when they go through this the process of, of either filing the FAFSA or applying to college, they sort of assume that they're above the threshold where they're going to receive any aid, but that may not be the case. So who, who should be filing the FAFSA? Really, it's anyone who's looking for help to pay for college. Um, you're eligible to fill out the FAFSA if you're a U.S. citizen, U.S. national, uh, a legal permanent resident. I guess I should say, therefore, that international students aren't eligible okay. um, because they can't receive federal financial aid, so they, they don't typically fill out the FAFSA. So you file the FAFSA to apply for um, financial aid from U.S. federal and state uh, governments. The form is then used by colleges to determine awards based on a family's financial need. So there's a, a few things I, I do want to quickly mention about the FAFSA. Um, it is available for free through the Department of Education's website, so you can fill it out on desktop or on a mobile phone. Uh, there's also a paper version for, for folks that want to go you know, that route. Uh, you can start filling out the FAFSA now as early as October 1st for the following academic year. Uh, the deadline that the federal government sets each year is June 30th, um, but schools that use the FAFSA to award aid um, sometimes set earlier deadlines. Um, some states also set earlier deadlines. So sort of the mantra that I'll probably be repeating a few times is the earlier you file that FAFSA, the better. Um, so keep in mind, though, there is um, some paperwork involved. Um, the FAFSA asks for things uh, related to income, assets. Uh, demographic factors like your household size, um, how many children are enrolled in, in college at the same time. 
but at the end of the day, uh, the Department of Education says that nearly all students qualify for some type of federal student aid. Wow. So really, you need to make sure you apply. Uh, there's there's basically essentially billions of dollars that are just left um, wow. un, un, unclaimed because students and families just think, oh, I'm not uh, eligible. I'm not going to get any aid. So they, they don't apply for it. And I think the other, the second uh, problem reason that a lot of people don't apply is that it's a bit too complicated, or they're not sure of of how to do it, or who how you know who can help them with it. So, are there uh, certain resources they can use if they need help step by step in completing the FAFSA and, and submitting it? Yeah, there's there's a few uh, ways they can go about getting help. Um, you know, first through the government. Right. There's a, a thing called FSAIC, which is the Federal Student Aid Information Center. Um, they, it basically provides support on behalf of the Department of Education. So they have a helpline with a 1-800 number, um, but also you can submit questions um, related to the FAFSA through email. There's web chat. Um, you can also submit questions through their social media platforms. Um, but there's also FAFSA events by state. Um, and so those are these events where basically college financial aid administrators volunteer their time throughout these different states across the U.S. Um, to help families uh, fill out the FAFSA. Um, there's also often free uh, help from local college financial aid offices or even high school guidance counselors. So there's definitely a lot of resources out there. And, and so it can be kind of a, you know intimidating process for, for some folks uh, in terms of filling out the FAFSA, but know that help is out there. And after the decisions have been made basically on, on who gets a certain amount of aid, uh, can a student appeal a, a financial aid award decision in any way? Is is how, what would the process be for that? Yeah, um, you know, maybe I should first talk about how schools award aid because the fact is is that colleges basically have different systems, you know, in terms sure. of how they, they award aid. Um, one overarching thing I should say is that colleges use a number that's generated by the FAFSA. It's called the Expected Family Contribution, or EFC, to determine a family's um, financial need. And so they calculate that need by subtracting that EFC number from an institution's cost of attendance for one year, which can include the, the college's tuition. But even that EFC number, that expected family contribution number, which the, is generated by the FAFSA, some colleges actually calculate it differently from how the federal government calculates it. So ultimately, each college has its own policies and, and ways of um, determining its financial aid process and how they, they dole that out. So it's really kind of the best bet for families to work with the individual financial aid offices at the schools that they're interested in okay. and the ones that they are interested in you know, appealing. Um, so yeah, to answer that, that question about appealing a financial aid award letter, you definitely can, or I should say appealing a financial aid award package, um, but you need a legitimate reason you know, for schools to re-examine your financial situation. You, you need to demonstrate that there's been a significant change um, in your financial circumstances. Typically, it's it's the parent that will submit a letter um, to the financial aid office that explains the situation. So, so some examples might be, you know, a recent job loss, uh, a death in the family, divorce, out-of-pocket medical expenses. Those are just a, a few examples of what those situations could be when a family's financial circumstances changed. But again, like I mentioned, even the fact that you know EFC can be calculated differently across schools, the appeal process can differ across schools. So before even writing that appeal letter, it's probably best to pick up the phone and call the financial aid office and just make sure, you know, do they have a form? Uh, is it okay to submit a letter? You know, just some of those those basics. 
Um, it is important to, to provide really specific examples, documentation, and, and proof of okay. you know, those changes in, in your financial circumstances. So is it safe to assume, unless there was a major change, they're probably an appeal is probably going to get rejected. Yeah, you can't just say, "Hey, this, this, this is not fair. enough." You yeah. know, yeah. So, but that being said, I think uh, you know, there's a couple of things too to to keep in mind. Um, you know, experts tend to say that private colleges, in particular, tend to have a little bit more money. So they, so you'd be surprised. You know, so it doesn't hurt to to try. I think is, is sort of the yeah. message that we want to get across. But you are correct. I mean, it, it's not going to be. Um, you know, there's not a large frequency with which that that uh, an appeal is successful. One one final helpful hint I definitely want to, to pass along is um, don't call it a negotiation. Uh, schools don't <laughs> schools don't like that. So you know maybe calling it something like a reconsideration um, and and just being you know respectful and and you know thankful for the opportunity to to even write to to a school, um, but uh, probably don't want to use the word negotiate. <laughs> and now we talk about different types of aid and we get into grants and scholarships, which I think a lot of people may sort of lump together and not fully understand the differences between those two. What's the difference between a grant and a scholarship? Yeah, and that's a good point. I think even experts sometimes you know, use those words interchangeably. At the end of the day, they are both free money, right? It's, it's a form of financial aid that doesn't require repayment. But really, I'd say there's kind of two main ways that they differ. There's the reason that aid is awarded, um, as well as the source of the aid. And that's kind of the, those two things is, is what differs. So let's start with the reason um, that aid is awarded. Grants tend to be typically they're need-based, based on the family's financial need. Whereas scholarships tend to be awarded for merit. So that's, again, things like athletic talent, other student achievements, or characteristics. In terms of source of aid, that's the other way that grants and scholarships can be different. So grants are typically awarded by the federal government, uh, states or colleges, uh, particularly private schools, whereas scholarships can come from a private source. So that could be like private foundations, uh, nonprofits, um, for-profit corporations. Uh, you might have on a college campus, maybe there's a donor that sets up a, a specific scholarship for different criteria. So that's what kind of, again, like I would repeat that the main things that are different are sort of the, the reason that the aid is given and the source of the aid. But yes, ultimately, it is free money. Snell, so I want to look at the different types of grants. I had to look these up. I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, that's an example of, of why people should really you know, dig and dig deep into these different types of aid. The difference between different grants, there's the Pell Grant, uh, the Federal Supplemental Educational Opportunity Grant, and then state and institution grants. Can you break down those, those three different types and, and where they may apply to different students? Sure. So the Pell Grant, um, you know, we like to think of that as sort of the building block um, of financial aid. Um, it's the largest grant program that's offered by the Department of Education to undergraduate students, and um, it's specifically awarded to students who dis demonstrate exceptional financial need. Um, so they're looking at factors like what I mentioned before, EFC, the expected family contribution, as well as the, the cost of attendance at a particular school. Um, and the reason I say it's like a building block is because financial aid officers usually begin the process of creating an award package by looking at whether the student is eligible for a Pell Grant. Um, Low-income families um, can receive these federal grants by, guess what, filling out the FAFSA. <laughs> so that's going to come up again and again. You know, just very quickly for the 2019-2020 academic year, the max Pell amount is about $6,000. 
and then the minimum is $650. So again, think of it as sort of the, the kind of really the the core grant that's out there for low-income families. Mm -hmm. And that would be for the year. Mm -hmm. Would they then have to reapply each year? Or is yeah. It set for yeah, four you, years? you do need to reapply. I mean, in general, with financial aid, that's why we talk about the FAFSA every year mm -hmm. is because you have to reapply. Because again, a family's financial situation could change, right, right from right. year to year. So because you're having to fill out things like income and assets and all of that, yeah. you have to reapply. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to make sure we got that. Yeah, that's a great question. And then that, that one that's a mouthful, federal Supplemental <laughs> Educational Opportunity Grant. Um, after Pell, that's the next grant that financial aid officers, as they're sort of cobbling together an, an award package that they look at. Um, so FSEOG is also a federal grant. It's also meant to help undergraduates um, with significant financial need. Um, it is actually often awarded to students who are eligible for the Pell Grant. Um, the amount is different, though. A, a smaller um, students can receive between $100 to $4,000 a year. So it is definitely you know, a smaller amount. And there's some key uh, differences to keep in mind. The FSEOG is administered directly by financial aid offices, and not all schools participate. So whereas the Pell Grant provides funds to every eligible student um, that's eligible for the Pell Grant, that's not true with this FSEOG. Each participating school basically receives a certain amount of funding for FSEOG each year from the government. And so once that runs out, no more awards will be given for that okay. year. And so that's really important because guess what I'm going to mention again, <laughs> filing the FAFSA as early as possible because because it is sort of that sort of first come first served type thing, you know, school could run out of of that grant amount. Um, you definitely want to file that FAFSA. And that, if, if that's not something eligible. you think about. So you look at the deadline and you say, well, as long as I get it in by right. the deadline, I'll be okay. But that's not that's not the case. Right. Then. Yeah. Don't take the homework approach of just filing <laughs> it at you know at, at midnight because it's due you know the next day. Yet don't, another don't lesson <laughs> of school applying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then you you asked about state and institution grants. Um, yeah, they are different from the other two that I just mentioned because those other two are, are federal. Um, but they're all similar because they're all need-based, right? As I mentioned earlier, grants are, are typically need-based. Um, but they really vary widely across states in terms of availability and criteria. Um, so, you know, for families who maybe aren't eligible for a significant uh, Pell Grant award due to where their income cutoff is, um, they might want to seek out institution-specific grants because these tend to be provided um, to a wider range of families, meaning grants that you know come straight from from the college. Okay, is that something they would have to find on their own at all, at all these schools? I yeah, mean, what's the best process? You know, to, to go about that when looking at the schools. Yeah, typically the the advice is to reach out to the financial aid office. Obviously, okay. you can you can look some of that stuff up online. But as you're doing your research, you do want to call the financial aid office to better understand. You know, what type of grants you know might I be eligible for? Um, but at the end of the day, again, colleges use the FAFSA, so the FAFSA is just so important for so many different reasons because colleges are going to look at what students you know put into the FAFSA to then put together an aid package and that can include institution and you know these these federal grants I want to pivot now just a little bit to scholarships um, I remember when I was a high school maybe a junior or senior uh, my school just provided us with these gigantic lists of potential scholarships to apply for and I you know you didn't know how to make heads or tails of which ones applied to to you or, or, or ones you should ignore, ones that were more important than others. How do you recommend 
a student look for scholarships? For a high school senior, when should that process start, for example? Yeah, what I always like to start out with is you don't have to be a valedictorian or you know the, the star quarterback to win scholarship money. Um, there are scholarships for all types of students. So experts advise that you start your search locally. Um, these awards are often less competitive, so starting in your own backyard and figuring out what scholarships are out there in your local community. But you should also look for national scholarships. Um, there are some great free um, scholarship search engines and databases out there. So uh, for instance, scholarships.com, uh, FastWeb, uh, College Board, um, there's many, many more. But th those are great you know, places to start. And the reason that experts say you know, start locally is because, of course, these national scholarships, there's going to be that much more competition right, on, on a grander scale. Um, in terms of, of timing, many students do apply during their senior year of high school, um, but experts recommend starting in the fall and also say, hey, it's an ongoing process. So yeah, you start in the fall of your senior year, but remember that you don't just apply to one and then that's it. Um, and, and in truth, you should begin as early as possible. So ideally, you're not waiting till senior year. Um, so you're saying that senior year of high school may should have <laughs> maybe started a little earlier. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, <laughs> um, because you know, if, for instance, there are scholarships that are open uh, that are that all high schoolers are eligible for. Right. So meaning there are scholarships out there that you could be a ninth grader or tenth grader and, and start to apply. You know, for those. And just think about that, you'll, you'll start to have this pool of money that you can use toward college expenses. The one thing I will say that I did do well in terms of applying for scholarships was once I found out about, I think these were local delegate scholarships that were offered through the state government, uh, I applied to those while I was already in college. So I want to address that with you now. Uh, that college students should also be looking for scholarships that they may not have considered or may not have received when they were high school students but can apply to now. Uh, what, can you, what can you say to that? Yeah, you're definitely right. You, you can definitely still apply um, even if you're already in college. Uh, you definitely want to check with your school's financial aid office um, and your academic department. That Those are great places to, to start. So for example, um, there are professional societies that award scholarships to current students who are majoring in their field. You know, it's a good way to kind of promote a particular field like engineering or one of those other STEM degrees. So you can definitely start um, even if you're starting, you know, late as, as, as some people might might say. But again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, too. It is an ongoing process. So even if you started fall of your senior year um, in high school, remember that once you get into school like you did, you, you can still apply to, to scholarships. Um, so really just remember kind of what I, I think I already said. There are all sorts of opportunities out there, including those that are for hobbies or for types of people like animal lovers. Um, I've, I've been surprised in, in the years of covering education. Um, the vast array of opportunities out there for, for scholarships. So off of that then, are there different categories of scholarships that are available besides sort of like the one you alluded to earlier, the athletic scholarship, there is more than that. Uh, can you talk about the different sort of wide categories? Sure. Um, again, there are many, many, many out there. So I'll, I'll just list off a, a few. So there is the the scholarships that are focused on academic achievement. So what that means is that they're basically looking at uh, GPA and grades, you know, in terms of requirements. Um, as we noted, there are these sports or athletic scholarships. Um, I should note that there's only 
some that offer full rides, right? right? Like division one football and, and basketball. But there are partial scholarships for all sorts of sports like um, golf and, and water polo. Um, so there, so I think there are sometimes these myths about um, athletic scholarships and what that means. Um, but keep in mind that, you know, again, there's all sorts of sports out there that, that um, there are opportunities to find money for. There's also first-generation scholarships, and what that means is money for those who are the first in their family to attend college. There's some great nonprofits out there that are really trying to get more first-gen students into college and, and know that that's very difficult often from the financing standpoint. Um, and then also, I should mention, there are scholarships for underrepresented groups. Um, so that can be for students who are from lower-income backgrounds, from minority backgrounds, including um, Hispanic and African-American students. Again, lots of uh, organizations and nonprofits out there that offer scholarships for those types of students. So that's just a, a quick run through, but again, there's just, um, there really is just so much out there. You know, if you love comics, there are, <laughs> no joke, there are scholarships for comic book lovers. So there's all sorts of opportunities if you, if you do your research. Now, I, I'm almost afraid to ask this next question because I don't want to try to reinvent the wheel, but are there any strategies to win a scholarship? I, I think everyone sort of assumes that it's all cut and dry, you know, if, if you're the best, you'll get the best scholarship. But are there any best practices when applying that, that can maybe separate you from, from other people? Yeah, I, I guess there's sort of three, they're pretty basic, I will <laughs> admit to that before I speak. Um, rules of thumb, you know, one, be very organized. You have to keep track of, you know, eligibility requirements, various deadlines, um, figure out what works for you, even if that's a simple, you know, Excel spreadsheet that you're updating um, over the years, you know, assuming you're starting early in, in high school. Um, two, following directions. Um, sounds kind of silly, but it's the same advice um, that our reporters also give in relation to um, filling out the college application. Think of the scholarship application in the same way. Um, some scholarships come with a requirement for an essay, like a scholarship application essay, so you want to follow the requirement if there's a word count, for example. Um, some scholarships ask for uh, recommendation letters, but they're very specific about how many, so you know, following those directions, um, that really matters. And then three, really apply to as many scholarships as you can, because you know, it is that kind of uh, luck of the draw in some way, right? So the more that you apply to, the chances of winning, <laughs> should increase. I don't want to go back to my individual college experience, but I will say when I applied to these House of Representatives and, and House of Delegates scholarships, one of the steps was then I would meet the individual and it would be a, basically a very informal interview and m multiple times they would talk to me about how you would be surprised how many applicants did not fill out the paperwork correctly and were automatically eliminated, whereas if they would have just filled it out. They would have gotten a portion of you know that scholarship money that was available. So those that right. you you would think it's so simple, right. but it's important to get that right. Yeah. I want to turn to some of the schools themselves. Uh, I, I don't want to call this a last resort, but are there states uh, that offer tuition-free college programs uh, today that that a student can turn to if if they're you know exhausted all of their aid resources and, and they still wouldn't be able to afford it? 
yes, um, but much of this is at the two-year level, so I do. I want to make sure that okay. that's clear. Meaning two-year level, meaning community colleges that award uh, a two-year associate degree. So uh, Tennessee was the the first state um, to make community college free statewide. Um, and today there are around 20 states that offer something similar. They're known as promise programs. So other examples include uh, Maryland, Arkansas. I should note that New York is quite unique um, in terms of offering its program at both the two-year and four-year level. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of these states are offering it at the, at the community college level. I, I should also note that most of these tuition-free college programs at the state level, they're what's called a last dollar program. Um, what that means is they're providing money after all other funding options like Pell Grants and state aid uh, have been exhausted. Okay. So, and... You that know, a student would need to demonstrate that they had applied to or, or gone through that process? Or I mean, it's, it's kind of um, kind of similar to what we talked about earlier where you have to fill out the FAFSA and a lot of those details come through the, what, what a student has filled out through okay. the FAFSA. And so through the FAFSA is then how they determine, okay, is this student eligible for a Pell Grant, eligible for state aid? So then they can figure out, okay, there is this you know sort of balance remaining. We'll cover that amount with the state program, if that makes sense. And it also varies, again, across states, but often there are some eligibility requirements, meaning you know you, the student has to be based in the state, of course, um, should typically be from a lower income or middle income you know, family background. Sometimes there's a minimum GPA requirement. And more states are considering these programs. Uh, there's also activity at the city level, which is interesting. So there's the statewide kind of level, then there's the city level, one example being um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I believe has had its program in for, for a number of years in which uh, Tulsa high school graduates can attend Tulsa Community College for free. Okay. So you also have at that, you know, at the state level, plus, sorry, the city level. In addition, there's the institution level. So um, interestingly, there is a, there is some movement at the four year you know sort of bachelor's degree um, sort of sort of level. Uh, one example I can give from uh, just this past fall in October, UVA, the University of Virginia, um, said that it would provide free tuition for in-state students whose families earn less than eighty thousand dollars a year and meet some other requirements. So it is interesting to see this movement. Um, again, it is mostly at the community college level, but there's definitely some interesting things even going on at four-year schools. Um, I should also note there are a handful, just a handful, uh, of four-year colleges that have been tuition-free for a while. Um, but these schools usually require some type of service or, or work in exchange for that, you know, four years of free tuition. So meaning, uh, the reason I say it's just a handful is I'm talking about things like the military academies, where obviously you get free you know, tuition for four years, but there is that commitment to serve, you know, after graduation. There's also a couple of schools that require undergraduates to work on campus, and that's how they then get the free tuition. Okay, now, so with everything that we've addressed so far, are there any overlooked ways to pay for college? I mean, you already spoke about the importance of the FAFSA for everyone, not just not just certain certain students. Are there any other hidden options that we haven't really touched on yet? Yeah, and as you said, you know, there's a FAFSA. I know I've also talked about applying for scholarships. Um, I've talked about appealing financial aid award packages because honestly, those are also things that people overlook when it comes to paying for college. Um, two others that I, I should mention are um, starting a 529 plan. It does amaze me in all the years of covering education how there's these reports that come out every year 
um, about the number of families that have no clue what a 529 plan is. And these are tax-advantaged um, college savings plans. So particularly if you have young kids, you can start saving and those savings will accrue over time. It's still worth opening um, even if your kid is in high school. You know, it's better better mm-hmm. late than never, right? So that's one overlooked way that we haven't talked about yet. And then another one is um, when it comes to student loans, um, you know, which is a controversial topic. Um, but really, the the good advice here is to exhaust your federal student loan options. You know, before you consider taking out private student loans, make sure you're you're researching federal loans because these offer um, better borrower protections. Um, they often have more flexible repayment options when it comes to that when the, the student has graduated. So that's another thing to think about. Um, you know, I think folks maybe dive in with private student loans that you do have the, the federal options that you really want to exhaust, take out. If you have made that decision to take out student loans, make sure you're kind of maximizing the, the federal options first. That thing you mentioned about the 529 plan is so important. I think what you a lot of parents will look at, well, my kid's 10, 12, 14 years old. There's no reason for me to set up a 529 at this point because it's not going to grow nearly enough, but can take a significant dent out of out of the expense of, mm-hmm. of paying for college. Yep. Obviously, the cost of college has been receiving more and more attention, even just in the last few years, um, with solutions from industry-specific boot camps to income share agreements to government leaders suggesting that that college should be free for all. How far away are we from radical changes to how we pay for college? How would you, how would you assess that? I'd say it's, it's difficult to predict. Um, you know, I say this with, with all the love in the world, but <laughs> higher ed isn't exactly known as the most dynamic field. Um, you know, change can be slow. So I feel pretty confident in saying that something radical likely is not going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> Watch, there's going to be breaking news. <laughs> but you know, one example I can give uh, is the Higher Education Act. Um, that's the law that governs colleges. Um, that's long been overdue for a reauthorization, but it always stalls in Congress. The last reauthorization was in 2008. But that being said, HEA reauthorization is is a good example of how change is coming because there's been a lot of discussion in this Congress about finally you know, getting that done. Um, and p- a big reason for that is this national conversation about college affordability. And I think lawmakers from both sides feeling that that pressure and that need to do something about it. So there's definitely lots of interesting things being debated at, at the state and the federal levels, um, including how to actually simplify the process of how students and families go about applying for federal financial aid. Um, there are proposals, I think you alluded to this, in terms of how to forgive student loan debt, mm-hmm. because that's a, that's a huge issue. So there is change that's clearly happening, even if it's not um, radical, as, as, as you put it. But including that, that free college movement that, that we talked about. And as we finish up here, uh, I'm not going to put radical on the, in this question. Any <laughs> last words of wisdom for students or parents of students just starting to get into the college application process? 
Yeah, I'd say that you know education is a, is a huge investment. So make sure you're doing your research to find the right fit. Um, that's a mantra we have had at, at U.S. News Education for many, many years. Um, you know, we're well known for ranking colleges, but even when we talk about the rankings, we say it's all about finding the right fit. And so remembering that fit takes all sorts of forms, like we've talked a lot um, about financial fit, uh, but there's also academic fit and cultural fit. So I think just remembering that in the same way that you put a lot of research into buying a home, um, you know, into moving, into all of these big investments of purchasing a car, uh, think about it the same way. Really take the time to make sure that you're investing in a, a great place for the, the future of your son or daughter or for yourself if you're putting yourself through school. Anita, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your expertise on how students can pay for college. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they'd like to follow more of your education content? So yeah, you should definitely follow us on Twitter, at um, US News Education. Uh, we definitely uh, promote uh, both our, our newer content as well as content maybe you missed that's still applicable to you, because we certainly have published a lot over the years. And sometimes, you know, for parents whose kids were younger and they were ignoring that content, and now they, it's definitely, you know, of relevance that they'll want to follow that. Um, I also want to make a plug for our free newsletter. Uh, we have a newsletter called Extra Help College Admissions. Uh, it's aimed at helping parents get their teen into college, and we often do include paying for college tips um, in that newsletter. So I, I really encourage folks to, to sign up for that. Um, you know, visit our website, and you can sign up for that newsletter. It's just delivered to subscribers twice a month, so it's a great resource. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us. And a thank you to our listeners. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it, and if you have questions about paying for college you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails and we'll try to answer a few on the next education episode. Finally, if you'd like to read more about paying for school or other education content, check out usnews.com education where we have rankings and advice on paying for college, online degree programs, best college and graduate schools, and much more. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.